Hey friends, it's Kevin Pang here. I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I host this show and tell you, dear listener, about my debut cookbook. It's coming out October 24th, and it's called A Very Chinese Cookbook. We've got 104 incredible Chinese recipes that are fail-proof. They've been tested in our kitchens again and again. We've got dim sum, street food from Sichuan, dumplings from Shanghai, noodles from Taiwan, and American Chinese takeout classics. And if you want to hear the backstory of how this improbable cookbook came to be, look in the back catalog of this proof feed and search for the episode, My Father, the YouTube Star. Anyway, the book, again, is called A Very Chinese Cookbook. It's out October 24th. Find it at your favorite bookseller. Please, please, please buy it. My employment is on the line. Okay, not really, but kind of, just a bit. All right, on to this week's show. Pakistan is a country of 230 million people, and the majority of them, over 97%, are Muslim. Religiously and legally for Muslims, alcohol is banned from being sold or consumed. So what have we told you that Pakistan has a drinking culture and a famous beer brewery, which begs the question, how? Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, we're taking you to Pakistan and a story about resistance in a glass of beer. How does alcohol survive and thrive in a country where it's banned? I'm Kevin Pang. Thanks for listening. Stick around. Foreign policy reporter Kunwer Khaldun Shahid brings us today's story from Lahore, Pakistan. I'm sitting inside a home a few minutes away from the famous Lahore Canal, which runs through the city. Built by the Mughal kings and institutionalized by British rulers, the canal has witnessed many social gatherings over the centuries. It's a Saturday evening in June, and I'm at one such gathering. A low-key party of friends and acquaintances. What's about to take place here is what would be quite a normal gathering in most other parts of the world. We're about to clink our glasses with a couple of alcoholic beverages. In Pakistan, this harmless get-together is, in many ways, a brave display of resistance. It's a resistance against a set of laws that have cast a shadow over what used to be a harmless pastime. Muslims, which constitute around 97% of Pakistan's population, are not allowed to drink or sell alcohol in the country legally. While the guests at the party hail from a range of religious and political positions, most of them are believing, and in some cases, practicing Muslims. Our party host is Muslim. I too am a Muslim, albeit a non-believer. I was born into the religion, but it's not something I believe or practice. I'm also not much of a drinker, but it's not because I'm Muslim. That's a story for another day. I was always intrigued by those who resist the alcohol ban, as it always read to me like a form of defiance against the Islamic extremism that has seeped into Pakistani society in recent decades. This is a theme that I frequently write and report on. I've also always wondered what it is about alcohol that makes it worth risking the wrath of the law. And what it is about the laws that made alcohol illegal, because it wasn't always this way. Sharab, or alcohol, has featured in Urdu poetry for centuries. Alcohol is in the lyrics of Sufi Islamic devotional music known as Qabwali. Pakistan had a buzzing nightlife and a rich drinking culture. 
But everything began to change in 1977. There's a lot to cover here, but the history is important because these changes would not only affect the nation's relationship with alcohol, they would also change the very fabric of Pakistan's identity as a diverse and pluralistic country. It's April 1977, and a ban on alcohol has just been put in place. It happened a month after the general elections took place in March that year. The Pakistan People's Party and Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who was Pakistan's prime minister at the time, had just won a landslide victory. Bhutto's opponents, the Pakistan National Alliance, was a coalition dominated by right-wing religious political parties, the Islamists, and they had accused Bhutto of rigging the elections. The Islamists targeted Bhutto for his secular and socialist positions and labeled him as anti-Islam. The word Islamist, by the way, is used to describe this right-wing religious coalition and their mission to inject a radical brand of Islam into society. These groups endorse a literalist interpretation of the Quran and Hadith, the sayings of Islam's prophet Muhammad, and they are intent on codifying them into law. They also aspired to impose the interpretation of Islam monolithically onto what was a relatively more pluralistic Pakistan at the time. The Islamist desire to ban alcohol had been gathering steam for years. They also demanded that nightclubs and bars be closed. Because Bhutto wanted to stay in power, he catered to Islamist groups' demands. For instance, Bhutto replaced Sunday as the weekly holiday with Friday, which is considered the holiest day in Islam. He also introduced pan-Islamist diplomacy for Pakistan and encouraged the Arab world to invest in the country that he was shaping into an Islamic hub. जो दस्तूर में आपने देख लिया होगा हर चीज जो है हमारे मजहब और दीन Here he's saying, you've seen it in the constitution how everything is aligned with our religion, our faith. There is nothing that is against our religion. There is no power except Allah. However, wooing the Islamists did not end up working out for Bhutto. He was ousted in July 1977 following a military coup. Military ruler Muhammad Ziaul Haq then came in to cement Pakistan's extreme Islamization. In 1979, Ziaul Haq introduced the Hudud Ordinances. which are a set of islamic laws carrying strict penalties the law made crimes like theft punishable by amputation adultery and possessing selling or drinking alcohol were not only made illegal but they were also made punishable by flogging or sometimes even stoning by death among the crimes that carry the death penalty according to the hudud ordinances is blasphemy against islam here's zaul haq from a 1979 interview with tames tv where he justifies the use of such harsh punishments we started off uh, from uh, from a point which in my opinion was most pertinent from the point of view of impact on the society and impact on society in my opinion is from laws uh, which look a little stringent there are these serious punishments like stoning a man to death chopping off a hand or uh, the lashes um uh the lashes are also being administered scientifically these uh, punishments are just right they're not barbarian they're not uh, against the human rights while these hudud ordinances including public flogging for drinking alcohol were regularly enforced in the 80s and even the 90s the more extreme forms of punishment haven't been implemented since the turn of the millennium however if you're muslim and you get caught drinking or possessing alcohol you can get arrested But of course, like for many other crimes in Pakistan, you can get away with the crime if you're influential 
or you have the right contacts to get you out of the punishment. The way the alcohol ban is enforced in Pakistan is that all Pakistani passports and ID cards explicitly state a person's religion. The religion is mentioned on the second page of the passport under annotation, while the ID card number corresponds to the religion in the national database. So, the host of the party knows precisely what is at stake when she drinks alcohol. We've been very careful about when and where it's being used. Even though our party host has been drinking in Pakistan for the entirety of her adult life, she has to be careful whenever she picks up gin or a can of beer. We're also being careful by referring to these sources in the episode by their roles and not by their names. We've also altered their voices to protect their identities. I don't drink amongst people who I don't know. I would avoid sitting around people and openly discussing, even just discussing or accepting the fact that I do drink. So you have to be very careful. There is a mosque a few yards away from the host's place and nearby is a madrasa or an Islamic place of learning as well. Our host says supporters of a radical Islamist party also live in our street. The tariq al Pakistan or the TLP has encouraged violence for any affront to Islam. They are the group that made international headlines for stoking anti-France violence in the wake of the attacks on the weekly satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo in France. So our host wants to make sure no one reports her to the authorities. Given the potential threat of getting caught, our host has recently taken measures to beef up security around her apartment. Unlike the TLP Islamist party, the drinking party this evening is quite peaceful. There's music in the background. It is dominated by socio-political discussions and literary chatter. Our host is a fan of Sapphire Dry Gin from Pakistan's own Murray Brewery. She gives me a peg of it on the rocks. You might be wondering how a brewery can exist in Pakistan. We'll get to that later in the story. But right now, I'm feeling the gin. It has quite a bite and completely knocks me out after a couple of sips. The host takes her own drink neat. She really likes drinks from Murray Brewery. I would say Murray Brewery is the best. As the night continues, I'm left with the feeling that the party reflects a form of resistance against Pakistan's weaponization of Islam and the state's coercive enforcement of abstinence. There are other people outside of the party who are on the ground shaping this resistance too. I'm going to now take you to Basti Sadan Shah, the heart of Lahore, to meet one such key player. Lahore is the capital of Pakistan's most populous province, Punjab. And the area I am in is full of registered alcohol salespeople. Most notably for our story, there are also bootleggers. Despite being arguably the most critical cog in the country's drinking machinery, bootleggers are largely invisible. Which is exactly how they want to be. They might be doing their business in any street across the city, or just milling about hoping for new clients. Those who have established themselves as reliable bootleggers are often found near the city's five-star hotels. And I'm here to speak to one of them. The bootlegger and I sit on the steps of a stoop at the end of the street. Babar, that's a pseudonym, insists that we speak discreetly. He does not want to draw any attention to him given the perils of the profession. Many of those involved in the business are part of the religious minority. In other words, they're non-Muslims. Non-Muslims are allowed to get alcohol licenses and permits. Muslims are not. Many bootleggers get into the biz because of the lack of economic opportunities elsewhere. There's also religionist profiling. In many cases, employers, including the government, 
earmarked lower-skill, low-paying sanitation jobs like janitorial work or sewer cleaning exclusively for non-Muslims. But many non-Muslims want a better, more dignified and lucrative alternative. Like our bootlegger barber. Barber says, There was a lot of tension in my life. My income wasn't good enough and there weren't enough resources for me to continue my high school studies. He says he knew a few bootleggers and got into the business thinking that this was a good way to make some quick money. Babur is Christian and for him, using this state-created loophole is his form of resistance against the system that has never come close to giving a level playing field to members of religious minorities. Christians, minorities, he says, should be treated at the same level. But that's not the case. This has created a lot of disturbance for the community. Barber has been supplying alcohol since 2015. And while he's wised up to the tricks of law enforcement, the police gave him quite a tough time when Barber was starting out. He says, if you are new, the police officers threaten you. They take your bottles as well and take extra money. They don't leave you till they get what they want. During Eid, which is one of the major Muslim holidays, they take even more money, even from those of us who have permits. They threaten to arrest those who don't comply with their demands. Baba adds that it's often plain-clothed policemen on motorbikes, without number plates, who crack down on alcohol suppliers. This gives the cops impunity to harass and extort bootleggers. Baba tells me the police do this because they drink alcohol themselves. Baba remembers one time he was delivering alcohol and a policeman stopped him out of the blue. He says, the policeman asked me what I was taking along. I replied, alcohol. The cop checked it. He asked me if I had a permit. I said yes. Then the police officer got upset and asked me to come sit with him and drink. I've just had food and it won't go down without a drink, he said. I said no, but I had to pay him for him to leave me alone. We're chatting on the evening before Eid al-Azha, one of the two main Islamic festivals. And Baba tells me that he's had quite a busy day. Another shift will follow soon, because despite the ban on alcohol, local Muslims actually drink more on Eid than any other time of the year. Dealers stock ahead for Eid, Barber says. They sell the booze for multiple times the price. A bottle that you get for 1500 rupees would be sold for 2500 or 3000 on Eid. A single bottle. That's about a $5 bottle being sold for around $10. He says that many Muslims also work as bootleggers. They're the ones with connections to top-tier clientele, like super-rich landlords, business people, and in some cases, political families and high-ranked military officers. Hotels and dealers have arrangements with the police for top clients in Lahore. Baba tells me that everyone is informed beforehand that someone will come and get alcohol from a particular place and everyone's told not to bother the Muslim bootlegger. It works as a don't-ask-don't-tell policy for most Muslim bootleggers who have the contacts that ensure that no one will snitch on them. Bootleggers with permits buy alcohol from these hotels and sell them to the clients. If the client is Muslim, they can often be charged twice the actual amount for a bottle. 
The bootleggers keep a share of the profit depending on their experience and expertise. And the brand that every bootlegger has profited from is the one the entire country is most familiar with. Mari Buri. Mari Buri. Mari Buri is the best. It's Pakistan's predominant alcohol manufacturer and continues to thrive in the country despite the ban on alcohol and Islamist inertia on the society. As I end my conversation with Babar, I get on my bike and drive out of Basti Sadan Shah onto the upper mall. And here's where I get to answer the question. How does a brewery exist in a country that bans alcohol? Our next destination is Rawalpindi, around 350 kilometers from Lahore to Pakistan's own Mari Brewery. Mari Brewery is smack in the middle of Rawalpindi's cantonment area, meaning it's surrounded by military installments. It's part of a garrison that hosts some of Pakistan's most critical national security buildings. The brewery is about a 10-minute drive from the Pakistan Army's general headquarters. But Mari Brewery was here long before the military GHQ, long before the Pakistan Army, and indeed long before Pakistan itself even existed. After going through a couple of checkposts, I get off a cab in front of the Mari Brewery gate. The gate is painted in the colors of the Pakistan flag, green and white, which is likely to come in handy to demonstrate the brewery's patriotic credentials. I imagine any place producing a substance considered haram or forbidden in Islam would inevitably have to prove their loyalty to the country on a regular basis. I'm here to meet Isfanyar Bhandara, the CEO of Mari Brewery. Bhandara has served as a member of Pakistan's National Assembly as a representative of the religious minorities. The Bhandaras are a Zoroastrian family, non-Muslims, which is why they are allowed to own and run the alcohol business. They inherited Mari Brewery from the British rulers as they were departing from the region during the partition. It was the partition of the Indian subcontinent that created Pakistan in 1947. The brewery was actually founded by the British in 1860. at Ghoda Gali near the eponymous resort town of Mari As I enter the conference room inside the brewery I notice the place is full of memorabilia showcasing the place's 150 plus year history The wall has pictures going back a century and a half There's a certificate of excellence from the Calcutta International Exhibition in 1883 There are also health certificates and old newspaper clippings One of them reads There is no substitute for Mari Brewery obtained throughout India. Clearly, Mari Brewery was as popular in the United Pre-Partitioned India as well. As I sit down with Bhandara, he tells me how the partition gave way to some of the existential challenges that the brewery faced from the onset. The Gora Gali premises were burned down by the mob. As you know, 1947 everything was up for loot and plunder and murder the first three decades of pakistan's existence were full of political turbulence successive military coups allowed the pakistan army to take charge of the country there were multiple wars fought with india with rawalpindi as the hub of military activity and yet amidst all the political turmoil mari brewery continued to supply liquor across the country the nation continued to drink without any hurdles Once the violence after the partition calmed down, Mari Brewery began to flourish. In addition to supplying alcohol, the brewery also exported beer from the Rawalpindi premises to other parts of the world. 
The beer was exported to Afghanistan. It was also exported to India in railway carriages. You will be surprised that we used to sell our beer to the Pakistan Army messes in nine, before 1977. Pakistan Army, the clubs were our major customers over there. The conference room opens up into the beer canning area. Bhandara's assistant explains how the beer is made. I can see a multitude of empty cans without tops that are being put on a conveyor belt. They are first rinsed and cleaned. Then air is removed to transform them into empty vessels. Beer is then filled in the can. As is the custom, I get offered a topless can to get a taste of Murray's famous beer, Murray Millennium Brew. It's peak summer in Rawalpindi and the fresh cold brew is hard to resist. I take a couple of sips and it is a thirst quencher, this one. I'm not much of a drinker, but I could taste the many layers of flavor in the beer. Yeah, it's, it's fresh, it's delicious. From the canning area, I head towards the distillery a few yards away, where other products are being bottled. As I enter the distillery, I see vodka bottles being capped. I'm reminded of my party host and barber, the bootlegger, who are both massive fans of Murray's products. Back in the conference room, I ask Bhandara what it is that makes Murray so popular in Pakistan. He says quality is the bedrock of Murray Brewery, even though he admits they aren't making particularly unique products. Only thing I can say is that quality. Quality is our bedrock. If I say I make a totally unique beer or a unique product, it'll be a lie. So we'll not go into that. For beer, we have German consultants. For alcohol, uh, we have some Indian consultants. And we have a world-class laboratory where we do all the testing. Another factor behind Murray's popularity, of course, is the fact that much of the alcohol consumers in Pakistan aren't exactly spoiled for choice. The 97% Muslim majority in the country, after all, has to break the law and risk imprisonment simply for a sip of their preferred drink. While Isfaniyar Bhandara isn't commenting on the demographics of his clientele, his father, Minu Bhandara, the previous CEO, told British newspaper The Telegraph in 2007, quote, I think 99% of my customers are Muslim. It's understandable why son Isfaniyar Bhandara prefers to carefully weigh his words. After all, he belongs to a non-Muslim minority community in Pakistan. He's also a politician who aspires to sustain himself in Pakistani politics while protecting his company. So I get why he relies on statistical extrapolation while discussing Murray Brewery's customer base. The population of Pakistan, as you know, it's almost touching 250 million. And if you take 4-5% of the non-Muslim, it's a decent number. And, uh, and uh, whoever drinks, I think it's a personal choice. Uh, it's not for me or for the government to say who should drink, who should not drink. That is, in fact, precisely how Pakistan used to be in the first three decades of its existence. Drinking alcohol was considered a personal choice, like other consumable products. Any backlash, including Islamist edicts, were also limited to moral judgments and not codified into law. In fact, bars and nightclubs flourished in Pakistan, making the country in the 60s and 70s one of the topmost destinations for tourists. We used to have discos in Karachi, and we used to have bars in Karachi, clubs in Karachi, cabarets in Karachi. Karachi was a destination like Beirut, Mumbai, 
these were destinations where the Europeans wanted to come and, and play and party and have a good time. As I walked out of Murray Brewery, I could not help but feel like a bit of a revolutionary myself. Even if my total contribution to the revolution was just two sips of icy cold beer on a hot summer afternoon. After the break, Kunwer travels to what was once the drinking capital of Pakistan. Hey, Proof listeners, it's Kevin Pang. I've got one question. Do you believe in magic? Well, I do. And it's the magic of mangoes. From that fresh spark in executive chef Erica Garicoa's mango ceviche in Ecuador. Hey, buen provecho. Están servidos. To the oomph they bring, mix into the polques and luchador matches in Mexico. Porque en México, con el pulque, nos ponemos mágicos. And to that refreshing brightness in America's Test Kitchen's pickled mango recipe, mangoes don't just influence magic, they create it. From their place of origin to destinations all across the globe, mangoes transform dishes into instant classics. Learn more about the magic of mangoes and their origin stories at mango.org. Did you know you can help develop recipes for America's Test Kitchen? It's true. We have nearly 45,000 home testers who try out and give us feedback on new ATK recipes before they're published. Want to be part of the ATK family? Go to americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing. Once again, that's americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing to sign up. And now, back to our story. There's no place where the resistance to Islamist policies is more palpable than Sindh and its capital Karachi, the former capital of Pakistan. Sindh is dubbed the land of Sufis and is renowned for its syncretic or inclusive teachings. Karachi became the hub of migrants following the creation of Pakistan. It's been home to a diverse array of ethnic and religious communities since 1947. But over the past four decades, Karachi has borne the brunt of Islamist, sectarian, ethnic, linguistic, and mafia warfare. That's why Karachi had the biggest cause for resistance. More so than any other major city, it has the biggest incentive to return to its more inclusive and tolerant past. Downtown Karachi was a happening place in the evenings, brimming over with nightclubs and bars. Metropole Hotel, Hotel Excelsior, the Intercontinental Hotel, the Palace Hotel, and the Taj Hotel were some of the buzzing hotspots. While Metropole and Excelsior still exist in varying forms, the other three have been rebranded. More critically, there are no signs of any nightclubs in these buildings or anywhere else in Karachi. To get more perspective into how Karachi has transformed, I meet a man who knows the city inside out. Amir Mughal is a retired intelligence officer of Directorate of Intelligence Bureau. He's a dedicated researcher and archiver of history and has made it his mission to chronicle that which has been lost. 
We're sitting inside one of Karachi's hotels in the downtown area. The location also carries personal nostalgia for Mughal. It was around 500 meters away and around five decades ago that he first heard of the existence of alcohol. Mughal says, I was walking down Zebunissa Street with my uncle. I saw a man who was vacillating in front of me. So I asked my uncle what was happening to the man. My uncle said, oh, he has come out after drinking. What on earth did he drink, I asked. He has drunk alcohol and look, there's a bar over there. The city had numerous forms of entertainment, including the bars that functioned as socializing spots. Today, these spots are largely limited to old-fashioned tea cafes. This transformation of Karachi stuck with Mughal. Being an intelligence officer, he knew firsthand the politics that radicalized the city and indeed the country. He saw what was being taught to the masses as part of the state narratives and decided to take it upon himself to document what he sees as the true history of Karachi. Over the past two decades, he's been digitally archiving history through his blog and social media accounts. This is his own form of resistance against the state. He hopes the coming generation of Karachiites and Pakistanis can learn the truth about their past and what he deems as the lies that they are being taught. Among those he holds responsible for the damage caused to Karachi and to Pakistan, one man is prominent, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. Mughal says, it is bizarre that a man who claimed to be secular, leftist and socialist, he was the one who imposed Islamic injunctions. Bhutto carried out what hadn't been done for decades. A secular man did what the Islamic clerics couldn't do, Mughal says. Mughal is a staunch believer in secular values and insists that Pakistan's progress lies in embracing them. He argues that secular liberalism took a significant hit under Ziaul Haq's regime, which initiated much of the lies and ultra-Islamization that are being told to the nation today. A critical part of Ziaul Haq's religionist project was rewriting Pakistan's history. Mughal reveals how this meant that the drinking habits of Pakistan's founding fathers had to be concealed from the masses. Biographer Stanley Walpert wrote a book on Muhammad Ali Jinnah during Ziaul Haq's reign, Mughal tells me. Zia asked certain things to be removed from the book, but Walpert refused. He was also asked to remove references to some of Jinnah's favorite drinks and food, alcoholic beverages and pork dishes. These are forbidden in the Islamic faith. Mughal maintains that duplicity has been a part of the Muslim political elite from the start. He says that the party that spearheaded the movement for a separate Muslim state in British India was full of people endorsing Islamist politics without practicing much of Islam themselves. These included Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, and Liaquat Ali Khan, the first prime minister. Mughal argues that none of the leaders who brought Islam into the narrative of Pakistan has ever upheld Islam in their personal lives. He says, Jinnah, who brought Islam into politics. Liaquat Ali Khan, Pakistan's first prime minister. Not a single member of the All India Muslim League, not one of them had a proper Islamic beard or prayed five times a day as per Islamic injunctions. Poet and philosopher Muhammad Iqbal is considered the ideological founding father of Pakistan. 
He had a vision for the Muslims of India to have a separate state where they lived with Islamic zeal. Iqbal too was fond of drinking. Abdul Majid Salik's book Zikr Iqbal alludes to Iqbal's drinking. Iqbal was a human, but we have put him on a pedestal, Mughal says. Let him remain a human. He was a poet, a great philosopher, translator, historian, professor, thinker, but a human who made mistakes. Of course, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, the man who officially banned alcohol in Pakistan, enjoyed beer himself. Yes, I do drink alcohol, but at least I don't drink the blood of the poor, Bhutto had said publicly during a political rally in Lahore in 1977. Amir Mughal tells me that even outside of Karachi, throughout rural Sindh, it is normal for people to drink alcohol. He says it has always been the case throughout the province. He narrates a story from the early 50s, how his father's high school friends used to enjoy liquor during breaks. Mughal says, My father used to drink soda, but during break time inside the school, my father's friends used to drink gutha or tharra, which is the local word for alcohol. Even today, wine shops across Sindh make it possible for anyone to drink. Anyone can go and buy it. Anyone can buy it, Mughal says. I've bought it many times. The beer available is really good. Murray's beer, the one in the green can, is the best. It's strong. Murray's product is really good. As we end our conversation, Mughal doesn't fail to underscore the thought with this description. Mughal calls Murray's beer absolute rocket. I'm back in Lahore. Alongside the resistance on the historical front in Karachi, I see cultural resistance in Lahore, the city considered the cultural hub of Pakistan. This resistance is undertaken through film, TV, poetry, and music. And I'm at the studio of one independent artist who is no stranger to ruffling feathers of the status quo. Ali Aftab Said is a media personality, cultural critic, and a musician whose songs and videos have often alluded to alcohol. As a socialite, Saeed also has insights and anecdotes to share from the parties that he often frequents. Of course, there's alcohol flowing at these parties. He also recounts some interesting stories of security guards outside upper-class parties, usually hosted at upper-tier hotels. The turbulent security situation in Pakistan has necessitated thorough security checkpoints for vehicles entering the hotel premises. He says the guards checking the car are extremely tense. But the moment they see there's alcohol in the car, their faces are relaxed immediately because they know this one's not going to explode. The conversation then moves on to alcohol in literature and TV. Said talks about how the drinking culture has evolved over the years. In 1986, a famous song was sung by the most popular female singer in Pakistan, Noor Jahan, for the Punjabi movie Chand Te Surma. The song was called Zalima Coca-Cola Piyade, which loosely translates to Please give me some Coca-Cola. In 2021, a Bollywood movie had a popular cover version of the song. <laughs> 
Said says the song was never intended to be about drinking soda. वो गाना कोका कोला के बारे में नहीं था हमने यही सुना है कि वो गाना इट वॉज अबाउट लिकर बट सिंस दिस वॉज द टाइम ऑफ जियाउल मार्शल लॉ द फिल्म प्रोड्यूसर थाल बींग नुसरत फतेह अली खान in 1988 Said's cover was released on the evening before Eid ul-Fitr in 2015 Ye jo peene wale hain jo ke Ramzan Said says those drinkers who leave alcohol in Ramzan and start drinking as soon as Eid comes I wanted to troll them He released the song on Chandrat which is the night before Eid As soon as Eid was announced he uploaded the song and wrote Wo likha ke Hazrat Gentlemen the moon has been sighted it is hereby requested that you all resume drinking Said's song Peelijiye was also a part of the playlist at the drinking party I was at in the beginning of the episode near the Lahore Canal Like Said the host of our drinking party writes poetry as well and her takhallus a nickname used by Urdu poets is a hat tip to her fondness for alcohol The party itself was brimming with discussions on poetry and literature. There were Bollywood tracks playing in the background. Many of these popular classical songs fittingly allude to drinking and intoxication. But under the musical and poetic ambience of the party, the more serious questions surrounding the defiance of Sharia too were deliberated. For instance, how do believing Muslims who drink reconcile their faith and alcohol? To me it doesn't matter. whatever the religion is saying yes it's that's whatever the religion is saying but when it comes to me when i'm not harming anybody when it's my personal choice that's the end of it there were also discussions over the contrasting fates that await the elite and the poor the muslims and the non-muslims for similar infringements in pakistan this extends to the gender divide as well the host of the party tells me the first time she had alcohol was around the age of 18 perhaps slightly younger than that it was always a forbidden drink it was at her uncle's house where it was readily available that she had her first taste of alcohol diluted in orange juice she says her mother used to drink as well but she never openly admitted it to her or anyone else society's reaction is much worse when a woman confesses that she drinks the host says men aren't scrutinized i believe the same way as women are it's not easy because one people keep a check on what's going on secondly uh you have to be careful with who you're letting in the house thirdly this that um your timings are pretty much checked not just by the neighbor but even by the guards The host tells me that her insistence that following religious commandments is a personal choice does not mean that she is indifferent to Islam. In fact, while she realizes that the blasphemy allegation can be used against someone who drinks alcohol, 
Like many other Muslims, she too has felt strongly about blasphemy against Islam. The blasphemy issue has always been very close to me. I initially was a very, very, um, not an extremist, not a very religious person, but yes, I didn't really like people who would say something against the Prophet or even uh, do things about uh, like making caricatures and all. And I used to start crying and talking to... For many who drink alcohol in Pakistan, some form of paradox is inescapable. But many of the Pakistanis who drink told me that many Muslims for centuries have not only reconciled the contradiction, but actually used alcohol literally or symbolically to resist the arbitrary enforcement of Islamic injunctions. Film, TV, music, poetry are keeping alcohol alive. Parties continue to offer liquor nationwide. Drinkers continue to defy violent penalties for a tipple. For some, it is about challenging authoritarian control and standing up to the status quo. For others, it's just about enjoying some good old booze. The following verses from Saeed's track, Peelijie, speak to that. Springtime is here. Drink some alcohol. Don't be so stubborn. Go on and drink. Go on and drink. Go on and drink. There will be accountability in the hereafter. Hence drink countlessly today. Go on and drink. Go on and drink. Thanks to Kunwar Khuldun Shahid for bringing us today's story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickert. I'm Alex Kern Cartarelli, and I'm an associate producer. I'm Lindsay Pollavoy, and I'm the TV and podcast intern. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Poynton. Scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music. Additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis. Is our director of host production and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact checking and additional research by Sarah D. Collins. Special thanks to Shahzad Sarwar and Alice Peter Bagtani. Thanks also to Zara Mukhi and Ahmed Ali Akbar for providing vital context and insight for this story. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer, and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, The Mango Board and Plugra Premium Butter. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.